What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. Nostradamus was a man of the past who specialized in trying to predict the end of the world. And as you are probably well aware, that his predictions did not come true. But there was one prediction that he made that did come true. There he was lying on his bed and he looks to those around him and he says these words, tomorrow at sunrise, I shall no longer be here. And sure enough, those were his famous last words. Isaac Newton said these words as his final ones before his departure. His are rather lengthy than most people. Perhaps that's why he was so wise. He said, I don't know what I may seem to the world, but as to myself, I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself now and then and finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than the ordinary, while the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. That's pretty articulate for your final words. Leonardo da Vinci said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Wow. Benjamin Franklin said, as he was asked to roll over to the other side to help him ease his pain, said, a dying man can do nothing easy. Winston Churchill said, I thought this was crazy. I'm bored with it all. Well, thanks for sharing your opinion with us, Mr. Churchill. Frank Sinatra said, I'm losing. And I guess he did lose his battle to whatever he was fighting with his illness. But then I found Elvis Presley's famous last words to be the most intriguing. He said this, I'm going to the bathroom to read. (laughs) Who would have thought? Thank you, Mr. Presley. I share all that to say this, that... Oftentimes, when when somebody is about to leave this world, they have something important to say. Sometimes, not so important as we just saw. And sometimes what they say will come to pass to be true. And as we come to the book of Hebrews, we have to understand that we're not desiring all these different famous people and their famous last words in our culture. We're desiring to see what the famous last words of this apostle had to say before he concluded his letter. And I tell you, his famous last words are glorious. And just to keep you up to speed, so far we've been studying the book of Hebrews from all the way to chapter 1, all the way till now. And we know the theme of this book is that Jesus Christ is greater better and superior than to everything and everyone in this world. And especially in the context of the Old Testament law system. Jesus is greater than the angelic beings, greater than the cherubims, greater than the seraphims, greater than the fallen angels, greater than the angels that are doing the, the, the word of God as he carrying out his will, greater than Moses, that great lawgiver, greater than even Abraham himself, greater than Joshua, greater than Aaron, the priest in the Old Testament, and 
greater than everything, all the offerings, all the Old Testament offer. The writer of Hebrews is unpacking this amazing truth that Jesus is greater. But now we are seeking to, to discover what are his last words. And so the question I want to ask today is this. What were the famous last words of the writer of Hebrews? We've seen so far the first 10 chapters are like this great doctoral dissertation about how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament and how we can look into the Old Testament and see all these characters living out by faith the promises of God. And we can do that now in chapter 12. We highlighted how we are called to run the Christian race with endurance, persistence, daily. But now as we come to chapter 13, we're seeking these final words. And I summarize it with this statement that I want to leave with you. God's power will rest upon all those who pray to Him, praise Him, and follow His precepts. In fact, I believe that the writer of Hebrews is, is relaying to us in this final concluding section that if you want the power of God to rest upon your life, do these things. I'm convinced today that the modern church does not desire to have the power of God on their life. And as a result, they, they do not see the urgent need to pray to God. They don't see the urgent need to praise God. And they don't see the urgent need to get into the presets of God called the Word of God. So today, I want to urge us all on that we need to spend more time in prayer this year. We need to spend more time praising God. We need to spend more time inside the Word of God. And may I just share this today? If you are too busy to spend time in prayer and too busy to praise God with your life and too busy to study the Word of God, then you, my friend, are way too busy. That being said, let's look at this passage. The famous last words of the apostle. I can summarize it with three words supplication, adoration, exhortation. Let's look at supplication first of all. Number one, if you want the power of God in your life, the famous last words of the writer of Hebrews, you got to pray. So number one, the power of God will rest upon those who pray to God. Notice our text. The beginning of this final conclusion the writer says, pray for us. Now, I find it very interesting. That is, I, I was meditating here in this text and, and reading into this phrase, what others have said and into the original language. It gives the idea that as you're praying for us, continue to pray for us. So the idea of prayer in the Christian life is, yes, our lives should be enamored with prayer. That it is a continual practice and discipline of our daily lives. So he's requesting prayer for these, from these believers on his behalf. Now notice so far, he's kind of given them five warning, warnings about their, their tendency and temptation to go back into the Old Testament system of the law when they need to, to just abide in the very grace of Christ that he displayed in the cross. And here he says to them, after all these things, he says, pray for us. Why is he requesting prayer? Well, I think first of all, we can see that as we read verse number 18, where it speaks about this idea of a good conscience and this idea of living honestly. And in verse number 19, idea of them being restored, that I lean towards Paul's writing this letter, but whoever it was and his group of, of, of people with him, they were most likely in jail for their faith. And he's writing to them and say, hey, will you pray for us until we're restored with you in fellowship? 
that we are continuing to have a good conscience. We're going to continue to live honestly and honorably before all. So I think there's a couple ways we can specifically pray for each other. But before we get into that, I want to remind you that in Mark chapter number one, Jesus Christ was out preaching. He was out discipling people. He was recruiting people to come and follow him. He was healing those who were sick. He was, he was doing all these miracles. But the Bible says in Mark chapter one, it says that a great while before day, Jesus departed into a solitary pl place and there prayed to God. Now listen, I want to remind us all historically, not just in our church, but historically in all churches, the least attended worship services are worship services given over to prayer. I don't understand why. I mean, do we believe in the power of prayer? Yes, we do. But why is it that if we are so prone to believe and affirm that God answers prayer, why are we so far removed from actually going to God in prayer? And I would submit to you that we have to pray. It's important to pray because God has commanded us to pray. He says in Thessalonians, pray without ceasing, giving us this idea that we can go to God anywhere at any time throughout our daily routine. And that should be our, our purpose in life, is having an, an atmosphere, an attitude of prayer all day. I'm not saying you gotta come up to, to what we call an altar and spend time praying there all day, every day. What I'm saying today is that we need to give ourselves more to prayer. I mean, prayer is pretty important. Jesus taught us how to pray. Pray to God the Father and to pray for His will to be done and pray that God would help us not to give in to the temptations that the evil one sends our way. And so that being said, in verse number 18 and 19, I believe that it's a recipe for how we can pray for others. As I read the first part of verse number 18 where it speaks about how how the writer here is reminding these listeners that, hey, we have a good conscience before God. This gives the idea of conscience here in the original language, gives the idea of, of somebody who has done moral good. So he says, hey, we've done the right thing that God has called us to, even though we suffer in this particular predicament. So pray for others to live morally in the eyes of God. Now, there are some people who do not believe in the existence of God. There are some people who do not believe the Bible is the word of God. And there are some people who do not believe that church is an essential part of life. And I just want to ask this question today. If there is no God and there is no holy book from God, who determines right from wrong? Do you determine right from wrong? Because some people might say it is wrong for me not to wear polished dress shoes while I'm preaching. They might. Some of them might say it's wrong for me to wear a green shirt while I'm preaching and a, and a blue suit coat. Some people might say that it's wrong for you to shave your head or to never cut your hair. We have all these different ideas. Who determines right from wrong? Well, if there is a higher power, then the higher power who created the world determines what is right from wrong. And so in this passage, we need to pray for our brothers and sisters and pray for the lost world to have their eyes open that they'll start living in a pattern that God says is right. 
And secondly, it speaks about how in all these things, they were willing to live honestly before men. So, yes, we need to live morally in the eyes of God and pray that others will do that, but also pray for others to live honestly in the eyes of God. One of the ways that we can be praying right now for our brothers and sisters is that we would live honestly concerning our tax return. Yes, as a Christian, we should give unto Caesar that which is Caesar and we should do it honestly. And may I say this, that if you don't do it honestly now, you will have to do it honestly later and you'll pay a whole lot more then than you would now if you just do it right now. Now that also being said, the higher powers of government should not make us bleed inappropriately and reign with a tyrant spirit. And certainly our founding fathers would probably roll over in their grave with how much we pay in taxes today. But hey, we live in a fallen world. And so in every area of our life, we need to live morally and we need to live honestly. Why? Why? Well, because the lost people are watching us and they see us living in a pattern that either does exemplify the life of Christ or does not exemplify the life of Christ. Family is watching us. Our friends are watching us. Our extended loved ones are watching us. Our coworkers are watching us. Everybody, our neighbors, people that we see on a regular basis, they're watching us so we can pray for each other that we will live morally and honestly. But now check this out. There's this idea that, that, that of plastic, uh, pra, um, um, uh, there's this idea of putting things off to another day in our culture procrastination. And I think in the church, we, we have that too. We say, well, I've got to do this real fast before I spend time in prayer. I've got to do this errand. I've got to go here. I've got to do all these things before I spend time in prayer. But what, what actually what happens is all those things occupy so much of our time that we, ever, we, we never get around to actually praying. So here in verse number uh, 19, the writer here uses the idea of beseech. This is a, an earnest plea. This is a, a, an urgent beg. And I believe it's in the context of prayer. That this idea that we need to pray for others to see there is an urgent need to pray in the eyes of God. Listen, when Jesus, the great son of God, the God incarnate who left his glorious throne he, and came to earth, he saw it important to pray. He did. His final words that he would utter on the cross were prayers. And my brothers and sisters, I think the reason why we don't see such a power of God at work in the church is because we have closed the door to the closet of prayer. How much time do we give to watching TV? How much time do we give to hobbies and leisure activities? How much time do we give to continuing education? How much time do we give to listening to this podcast or listening to this radio station or, or doing this, that, and the third? How much time do we give to all these things and how little time we give to God in prayer? Do you want God's power? We've well, got to pray. Supplication. But as we move forward in our passage... We see that, that the writer was begging them to pray so that they could be restored to them in worship and fellowship. But now in verses 20 and 21, I love this prayer of benediction in the text. This is one of the most famous ones next to 
uh, like the one in Jude and some others that, that often in a church service, not necessarily, we, we don't always really do that necessarily. We have a prayer benediction, but sometimes people will read a, a prayer benediction from Scripture. This equates to the same level of the one in Numbers, the one in Jude. And in here we see that, that, that it's such an amazing, beautiful prayer that the writer has for his recipients. And today we see that it is not just a prayer, but it is also a prayer of praise to God. So we see this idea of supplication verses 18 and 19. But now I want to draw your attention to prayer. What comes out of prayer is this idea of adoring and worshiping God. They are mutually connected. You cannot pray without praising God. You cannot praise God without praying to God. They are connected. And you see that all throughout Scripture and here, of course, certainly, too. Secondly, let's consider adoration. But consider this. The power of God will rest upon those who praise God. The power of God will rest upon those who praise God. It says in verse 20 that the God of peace. Now, let me pause right here. One of the reasons why I would strongly lean towards Paul writing this letter, or this sermon into written form, is because of this phrase, the God of peace. You know, this is exclusively used by the Apostle Paul about seven other times in the New Testament. No other writer uses this phrase. I would also argue that because of the reference to Timothy here in this closing benediction, that it would also remind us that it is likely the Apostle Paul written. Now, I cannot dogmatically prove that to you. And when we get to heaven, we'll figure out who actually wrote Hebrews. But those are some reasons why. And it is here in this passage that, that like Paul wrote in other areas, this writer references the God of peace. And he is the God of peace. He is. And so here we can praise God because he cares for his people. Notice this verse. In verse 20, it begins about this God of peace, this God who is a God of consolation, this God who is a God of, of great comfort, this God who cares for you and me is a God of peace and brings peace to those who know him. But then check it out now. So far in Hebrews, I want you to understand, you can go back and read it again and check me out if you'd like to. But no other reference to the resurrection is specifically mentioned except right here in verse 20. Now, isn't that interesting? The writer of Hebrews is writing about all these Old Testament laws and rituals and, and how all these characters uh, picture to us a greater figure to come, and that's Jesus. But it is in this moment that he finally comes to this idea that Jesus rose from the grave. I think throughout the whole book of Hebrews, it is implied that the writer believed it. But now he's just giving this closing um, remark about how he believes in the resurrection. And let me just share this. If you do not believe in the resurrection of Christ... You cannot be a Christian. You can't. It is a carnal belief. Romans chapter 10 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. The only way to be delivered from your sins is to affirm by faith and faith alone that the work of Christ on the cross is able to save you. And then he defeated death, hell, and the grave and sin itself by rising again victoriously. Jesus is risen. We'll celebrate it in Easter for sure on, on Resurrection Sunday. But here we see that, that the writer of Hebrews is praising God because God the Father brought up again Jesus from the dead. 
And I like this. It, it, it reminds us of how much God cares for us because it uses the term shepherd. Would you say shepherd with me? Shepherd, say it again. Shepherd, one more time, please. Shepherd, it, this God of peace who has so much power that he's overcoming the, the, the grave that he also is so compassionate that he cares for us. Shepherd. Now, the word great comes from the Greek word megas or megas or mega. The same word we get mega from in our English language. And Jesus is, is being described as, as not just a shepherd who oversees a group of people, but he is described as the great shepherd who oversees us all. A shepherd would tend to his flock, would care for his sheep. When the sheep were healthy, he would be there helping them out to rejoice with them. When the sheep were hurt, he would be there comforting them when they were hurt. When they were being led astray down the wrong way, he would step in and lead them back on the path. When the wolves would come and the other animals would come and try to, to kill on the sheep and, and, and kill them and, and eat them, the shepherd is there to protect them. So the shepherd has many roles and we see Jesus protects us. He leads us, he feeds us, and he directs us all in the same. And then I like this idea where it says, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now, there's other covenants in the Bible. You remember the Noahic covenant? That is a, a promise that God gave the world through the rainbow, that when we see the rainbow in the clouds, that is a reminder that God will never destroy the world with a flood again. Then we have the Abrahamic covenant. That is through the lineage of Abraham, God would send forth a Messiah and rescue the world then we have the Davidic covenant, how David is a type of how a future king would come and establish a kingdom on this earth and rule and reign. We have all these covenants, but in some aspect, these covenants were pointing us to a greater covenant that was eternal covenant. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ died on the cross and he spilt his blood. And that blood was shed so that we could have access to God and our sins forgiven. But then when Jesus rose from the grave, it's a reminder that the Old Testament prophets predicted that the Messiah would come and defeat death and hell by rising again from the grave. And so this is a reminder that Jesus Christ was God incarnate the great shepherd who overcame the grave and the one who is the promised Messiah who is giving us a greater covenant that God gave to the patriarchs in the Old Testament. Praise God for he cares for his people. But now let's look at verse 21. Verse 21 begins with this word perfect. Would you say that with me? Perfect. This does not mean without flaws. This means to be repaired for completion. You know, a couple years ago, I decided I wanted to buy a fixer-upper home. And so there I was in that office signing those dotted lines. I felt like I was signing my life away. But this house that I purchased, it needed a lot of work. Had to go in and it needed a lot more work than I thought it did, that's for sure. And I'll tell you, I spent a whole lot more money than I thought I would have and should have, really. But so we go in there and we get it all painted. We get the new windows installed. We get the new appliances installed, new countertops, new sinks, um, a, a new heat pump on one uh, there, and then, then new carpet, new flooring. And, and, and you go in, and, and, and when you first went into the original place, it, it looked totally different when you, after it was done. It went through a major repair or renovation. 
And so the idea here that, that the writer has in mind with this term perfect is that when God steps into your life, he will come in and totally make you complete in him. And so we can praise God because he completes his people. He does. A person such as your wife or your husband or your son or your daughter or your grandchildren, they do not complete you. They can compliment you or at sometimes contradict you. They do not complete you. The only one that can ever complete you in this life is Jesus Christ and him alone. And so let's praise God for his work that he stepped into our lives and he works in us according to his good will. God has, has a promised will that he has decreed in eternity past and he knows the end from the beginning and he knows our lives better than we know and he's orchestrating all things out in our life for his greater purposes and plans. And here the writer has that sense in his mind. And then not just does this God care for us and complete us, but he cherishes us. He's working in us in such a way that it will be well-pleasing in his eyes through Jesus Christ. So God is viewed as a shepherd here who cares. God is viewed as a, in a sense, a contractor who comes into our life and repairs our life and fixes what is broken. And then he's likened to one who desires for us to succeed so that we can be well-pleasing in his eyes. And so as a result of all these things, the writer here goes on to say, to this God, who's a God of peace, to this amazing God who gave us his son, Jesus, who is our great shepherd, deserves the glory forever and ever. Amen. Adoration is what's needed in the house of God. If you want the power of God resting upon your life, You've got to praise him. You've got to pray to him. But now thirdly, what else were the famous last words of the writer of Hebrews? Well, it's this idea of exhortation from verse 22 to 25. So thirdly, consider exhortation. This idea, the power of God. If you want the power of God, you need to pray. You need to praise him. But now check it out now. If you want the power of God to rest upon you, you've got to follow the precepts of God. So the power of God will rest upon those who follow the precepts of God. Now, the whole idea and premise for this concept of the power of God is found in verse number 22. Here it gives the idea of exhortation. It says the word exhortation. He says, I beseech you. Again, the same word as he said in verse 19. So it's an earnest, urgent plea. He's begging his brothers. Now, by the way, I think that the writer here is writing to all believers because of the terminology of brethren that he uses scattered throughout here. And some of, these, some of these believers were being tempted to go back to the old system. And the purpose here is to, to push them back to Jesus Christ. They're being tempted. They're all about to sway. And he, he's giving this message in such a way it's going to steer them in the right direction. The word exhortation is the same term used in Acts chapter 13 and verse 15 where the apostles would go into a synagogue and they would be asked to come and speak before the audience. And so the idea here of Hebrews being a, 
and oral sermon that was written down is based upon this text, verse 22. And also, by the way, it begins. And here, it's just a reference to some type of sermon or a lesson, or as some people say, a homily, a message. Now, by the way, you could take this book and you could read it in less than an hour. The average person, it would take them 45 minutes to read in an average pace. Reminding us that, that hey, that is like an average typical sermon. Some to, somewhere between 30 minutes to an hour long is how people preach today. Everybody has various opinions about it, um, surely. And, and many of you are, are very quick to share your opinions with me about how long a sermon should be. And I get that. And I, I appreciate that. Uh, some days I do at least. Um, but here, if, if, we want, if this is a sermon, it takes 45 minutes to read it. So therefore, maybe I should be more biblical and preach a 45-minute sermon every Sunday. How about that? <laughs> Just kidding. I will preach however long or however little God directs me. And if you have to leave and something else is more important for your time, then by all means, you may leave. But here it says, I beseech you, brethren, suffer. This idea of bearing with forbearance and endurance. And sometimes, let's just be honest. Sometimes when we're listening to a sermon, we are suffering through it. We are enduring it. And so he is saying, I want you to endure and suffer through and bear this message of exhortation because it is the word of God. And he says, for I have written a letter unto you in a few words. Now I know you'll be like me when I first read this, I say, yeah, you can tell this writer was a Baptist. He went on 13 chapters and says, well, I, I wrote to you with just a few words here. What does he mean by a few words? Well, I think what he means is that the whole context of this book was condensed into one message, one letter, and that he could have written a volume after volume after volume, a series of volumes pertaining to how Jesus correlates to Moses and Aaron and all the other things in the Old Testament. And so he summarized it in just a short amount of time. And so as I read this text in verse 22, I'm reminded about how we can find comforting consolation in God's powerful word. God's word has great consolation. And if somebody like me is standing up here and proclaiming God's word in context and properly interpreted, then they are declaring the word of God. Verse 23 is a reminder how Timothy, which by the way, there's only, to the best of our understanding, there's only one Timothy mentioned in the New Testament. And that was Paul's disciple named Timothy. Now, if this was another Timothy, then we're just not aware of the context of that Timothy. But the Timothy that Paul discipled was very popular in the ancient church. He pastored the church of Ephesus. He traveled with Paul. And so he would go to these churches with Paul. And even some people believe that, that, it, that Paul is dictating Timothy to write these words. And it is possible. I don't know, but it is very possible. But here it says that, no, don't you know that our brother Timothy is now set at liberty? Reminding us that Timothy was incarcerated. He was in prison for his faith and now he's free. And so as I read this passage, I'm reminded that we have this liberating, freeing power that God gives us through his word. 
So many times people are chained up with legalism, adding different things to the word of God for salvation. So many people are, are chained up with this idea of Phariseeism. That is, they're, they're, they're trying to demand people to live in accordance to their rules and not God's rules. But I'm here to tell you something. When you experience God's grace, it is quite liberating and freeing. Praise God for his good grace. And we see that portrayed here, that even though you might one day be persecuted or go to jail for your faith, maybe we'd ever know, that you one day will realize in that jail cell that you are the most free man that has ever lived on earth because you know Jesus Christ who came to set the captives free. Then in verse 24 and 25, we see not just comforting consolation, not just freeing liberation with God's powerful word, but now we see this idea of finding gratifying compassion in God's powerful word. It was customary, yes, by the Apostle Paul and other New Testament writers to conclude their letters with grace. A prayer of grace to shower down upon those believers. And so today we find much gratifying compassion in the grace of God. When you think of Jesus, yes, we can think of love. Yes, we can think about the Son of God incarnate. But we can truly think in our minds and ponder on the fact that Jesus is the, the definite description of grace from God's throne in heaven. God giving us his riches at the very expense of Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews certainly had these final words about how if you want God's power, you need to follow the precepts of God. How you need to spend time praising God and spend time praying to God. All these are important. And our culture has deviated not just from prayer, not just from praise, but from the word of God. But when our lives are anchored in God's word, we will understand that we can do nothing else but praise God and pray to him for what he's done for us. Now, I find it interesting, some of the last words of the writers of the New Testament. But what I find more interesting is the final words of Jesus Christ before he died. And so I want to share with these these with you. You've read these before, I'm sure. But what's interesting is Mark's gospel does not record some of these final sayings of Christ. But Matthew has one, Luke has three, and John's gospel has three. And what I like about this, it's a reminder that, that Jesus' final words was far greater than Nostradamus, far greater than Isaac Newton, far greater than Leonardo da Vinci, far greater than Benjamin Franklin, Winston Churchill, Frank Sinatra, and surely far greater than Elvis Presley. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was in that moment that he felt totally abandoned by God because the wrath of God was laid upon him. In Luke 23, he says, Father, I mean, imagine they are crucifying him and there he's praying for forgiveness to be distributed among those who crucified him. That includes you and me. We certainly were not the Roman soldiers who nailed those stakes into his wrists and into his feet. We weren't the, the soldiers that, that, that hung him on the cross, but our sin hung him on the cross. And so there, in a sense, he is praying for God the Father to forgive us from our transgressions. In Luke 23, he goes on, he says, he looks to this thief who's beside him, and he says, this very day, sir, because of your faith, you will be in paradise. 
And he prays to the Father and says, it's in your hands I commend my spirit. John describes it a little differently. John, I think, it is interesting. Out of all these sayings of Christ as right before he dies, I find this one so interesting because he looks to his mother and he looks to the one that Jesus loved, John, the apostle, and he looks to them and he is now passing on the caretaking of his mother to somebody else. So hey, before we leave, before we exit out of this earth, we need to make sure that we have our ducks in a row, as the old timers say. We need to make sure that before we leave, things are easier to be done for our children or those who will be left to take over the problems that we leave behind. But then he reminds us that even in the great trial of the crucifixion, he was, he was just a human like we were in that moment, but just God also, God incarnate, but still his humanity was being displayed when he says, I am thirsty. Reminding us that the trials of life can make us thirsty. But then in chapter 19, verse 30, he said those great words. It is finished. And when Jesus echoed that final phrase, it was in that moment that the sacrificial work of the atoning for, the, for every believer who would ever trust in Christ was secured. So if you know Jesus as your Savior, the blood of Christ secures your spot in glory. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, then we invite you to come to faith. The gospel is open to everybody, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. And this, it is finished. It literally gives the idea that the moment Jesus done what he did, the effects of that crucifixion last for all eternity. These are not just the famous words of the writer of Hebrews, but also the famous words of Christ our Savior. Do you want God's power? Well, you've got to spend time praying. Do you want God's power? You've got to spend time praising him. And if you want God's power, you've got to spend time meditating in his holy precepts. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.